Uh, we might get started. Welcome everybody. Um, I'm Helen Simonson and I'm part of the ACME team here that have been working with Sue Neslin and Sarah Gibson uh, to program this symposium. Uh, I'd uh, also like to take the moment to um, uh, acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Kulin Nations, and pay my respects to the Elders past and present. Uh, welcome to the second day of our symposium uh, and Welcome for those who have returned and a big welcome to those who are attending for the first day here today. Uh, we spoke a little bit yesterday about how uh, Sarah and Sue brought this project and a proposal to us quite some time ago about um, a bigger program around this extraordinary interactive documentary and a program that would bubble up all the themes and ideas that are embraced in this um, multi-platform work. Uh, we saw a great synergy uh, for us to look at this as part of our exhibition period of time with the Disney exhibition that we currently have down in our gallery as a way really to counterpoint a lot of that sort of Disney monopoly on fairy tales. So for us we saw it as a great way to really support the exhibition program that we currently have. And it made sense to look at a lot of these themes and go with the density that is within this project re-enchantment and uh, take those and tease them out and explore some of those concepts. So it was a great uh, chance for us to work and put this in the context of our larger Disney program and also to celebrate an Australian work um, that was important for us as well. And it is an extraordinary piece and these are the creative team that have been involved in this project have enormous experience and that is seen for those that had a chance to see yesterday just in the sort of layers and the depth of this particular work. Uh, yesterday in our symposium we got to, I think importantly, go past that sort of pre-Grimm and Disney period and look at where the origins of these forms come from and explore some of the multiple and more adult meanings that are attached to this. So when we looked at the Red Riding Hood session, we looked at multiple versions and stories of Red Riding Hood that took us from devouring, uh, to being, being devoured, cross-dressing, uh, cannibalistic genitalia... <laughs> To, to a female transformation and all of those themes that run through. The second session when we looked at the Cinderella myth gave us a really interesting perspective on how the myth itself had, had charted the history of shoes and fashion and how had embedded into what is a sort of phenomena in our culture of the makeover culture idea. So this morning, taking some of those origins and ideas, we look more at the creative practice of how particularly this uh, docu multi-form documentary took place. Another interest of ours here at ACME is in exploring new forms of media and how transmedia and multi-platform delivery um, starts to really rethink and, and liberate work. And this morning, um, the artist, artistic team will also take a look at that. So I'd like to introduce um, Professor um, Norrie Newman and she's going to chair our session this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. And thanks to ACME for hosting this symposium, which really is remarkable in the sort of breadth and depth that it's bringing forth and resonating with the breadth and depth of this absolutely amazing work. 
It really gives me the greatest pleasure to introduce uh, this session and to chair it. Having watched the project develop over the years at UTS, where I was uh, working before I recently moved to the wonderful Melbourne, um, but uh, at UTS it was one of my um, tasks, I suppose, was to be director of the Centre for Media Arts Innovation, which um, supported this project, hopefully usefully supported it through uh, its development. And the Centre for Media Arts Innovation, innovation is a pretty heavy mission for a centre, and at times I worried about how we would do that. But having this project as part of the work that we were supporting really signals what innovation can be. And I think it's a great um, achievement of the work and an achievement for the centre that a work like this was based there. So from my former position, I'm very proud to have been involved with this work, even in a minor supportive way. Um, with this project, we see, feel, and hear what innovation can be. We see scholarly research and practice coming together to lead to new forms and new knowledge, new experiences and new pleasures. I think, you know, we use the term multi-platform, but that's such a cold term, in a sense, for the amazing way that this work has put together new forms. I think we'll need to come up with a new term um, or at least acknowledge this has re-enchanted the rather dry term of multi-platform. I have to admit, confess to being someone who wasn't into fairy tales before this work, and um, I have to say that this project has enchanted the world of fairy tales for me, as well as re-enchanting that world. And I say world because this is really a truly amazing work of art which creates a world, a world of fairy tales. To me, this work performs the fairy tale. It works performatively to bring this world alive. It's a magical, mysterious, dark, alluring, in the sense of luring us in, evocative, irresistible world, I have now come to understand, where it and we pursue and create new ways of knowing the world, our own world. This is the transformative work that art does. It's the transformative work of fairy tales, it's the transformative work of art, and it's the transformative work of this particular work. Which re-enchantment inventively, and I use this word very carefully, inventively does for us. It is inventing a world, it's inventing a form, and it allows us to do it for ourselves when we engage with it. So what is this form which re-enchantment re re-enchants for us? It's certainly more than a sum of its parts, documentary, drama, animation, music, music, paintings, interactive website, multi-platform. It goes beyond all these. 
um, to borrow from a term that Maria Miranda is working with, uncertain. It's an uncertain form. We don't yet know exactly where to place it. It's really leading to new possibilities. And as with fairy tales, anything can happen. And anything can and does happen in this work. I've learned, amongst so much else, in engaging with this amazingly rich experience, that fairy tales allow you to explore getting lost. So I invite you to enter this work in your own time, to enter it and re-enter it, engage with it again and again, to re-enchant your own world and hopefully add your comments, insights and texts and works to the site because that's part of what um, it generously uh, allows you to do. So I won't go on any further, though I'm tempted because I'm so um, impressed by this work, but I just want to briefly introduce the panellists. Sarah Gibson astounds us, as always, with her extraordinary range of talents and insights in this work. She's a truly interdisciplinary artist and scholar. The depth of her research, the unexpectedness of her ideas, the way she um, engages with and works in various art forms. She's a painter, an animator, a director, a collaborator. In a way, this is the ideal uh, platform for all her talents, and she has um, shared them with us there. I've always admired Sarah's work, but I have to say the vision and accomplishment of this project really takes it to another level. I understand, I was unfortunately not able to be here yesterday, I understand that uh, Sarah was introduced uh, in detail yesterday, so I won't repeat that, but I'll just briefly say she's uh, a well-known artist and filmmaker as well as a senior lecturer in media arts in the Faculty of Arts and Social Science at the University of Technology in Sydney. Um, She has uh, written and produced and directed a range of documentaries over 30 years, each of which in its time really pushed the form to the limits. So it's not surprising that she's done that again here today. This is her first interactive online project and um, as always it's uh, quite astounding. Sue Maslin, the producer, also was introduced yesterday so I'll just sort of sum up to say she's an award-winning screen producer and an adjunct professor at RMIT and she produces and distributes contents content across many platforms, cinema, television, web, and mobile phone. The importance of a producer for a project like this is, you know, hard to underestimate. The scope that gives all the rest of the team to do their work, to explore the limits, is really important. And I think you can see from the, you know, the final outcome of the work how important Sue's role was not just in enabling the project to happen in that sort of producer way, but enabling the creative artists to really explore their own creativity and possibilities. Um, Rose Draper, who's the design lead, wasn't introduced yesterday, so I'd like to say a bit more about her. 
She was formally trained in design and has been an animator and visual effects artist since 2004. She's been responsible for the visuals in productions such as Revealing Gallipoli, Vietnam Nurses, Rock and Roll Nerd, just a few, and she was co-recipient of Australia's first AFI Award for Best Visual Effects for her work in Hunt Angels in 2006, and also part of a Logie Award-winning team constructing Australia, The Bridge, in 2008. I'm certain that the next time this these, this team is uh, introduced, they, we will also be adding a list of awards that this work uh, wins once it's out there. Um, Reenchantment is her largest body of design work yet, um, and she continues to develop and apply her rich textured visual style through abstract painting and digital art and is currently Sydney Broadcast Design Team for the well-respected broadcaster SBS. And you just have to see the visuals to appreciate Rose's work and also to appreciate um, Sarah's work, of course, and Sue's. So I'll just um, now turn it over to Sue. No, thank you. That, that was a really lovely introduction, and uh, I particularly like the idea of the uncertain world, uh, because that is, in fact, the, the world of fairy tales, but also the world that we, um, as the, the production team and the creators of Reenchantment, entered into you know, for four years. It was a very, very uncertain world uh, when Sarah and I first started the discussion around what might be possible to work in a form that uh, brought together those of us from a film and television practice. And uh, Rose, um, we worked together on Hunt Angels, and Sarah and um, I go way back, all of us do, in a film and television setting and working with you know, documentary ideas in a linear uh, format and then teaming up with those um, of the team who come for, from IT backgrounds as digital animators and digital developers and so on. And what might be possible if you create a hybrid world that sits somewhere in between those two worlds? And that's sort of the theme that we would like to sort of tease out in the course of um, today's approach to the process and the background and the methodology and so on for Sarah as the writer-director and for Rose as um, the designer. So thank you for those of you who have come back again today um, from yesterday. It's uh, you know, just been such an amazing, um, intense and just dense you know, um, session that we've been able to do here at, at ACME. And the thing that's been particularly exciting is you as an audience reflect what we had always hoped would be our audience for the work. So I know, you know, amongst you we have filmmakers, we have writers, we have um, teachers, academics, students, creative writing, students, um, artists, psychologists, all here in the audience, and that's incredibly exciting for us. So just for those of you who weren't here yesterday, what Sarah and I wanted to do is just take you on just a little brief journey into a couple of spaces that we didn't explore yesterday, just to reacquaint yourself with um, re-enchantment and what sits inside what we call an immersive journey into the hidden meanings of fairy tales. So Sarah, if I can invite you... Um, oh, sorry, first of all, what I might do is play a three-minute documentary animation or interstitial as it's known one of 10 which are currently screening on abc tv and over the course of of march 
And this really will be uh, a way for many, certainly amongst the television audiences, to have their first engagement with the ideas um, around re-enchantment. So an invitation in from television across the platforms to the world of the interactive website. So I'll just play this episode. Take a few moments to discover the world of re-enchantment, where fairy tales are not just for children. We associate fairy tales with princes and princesses and romance. But what do they say about sex? The most controversial is Little Red Riding Hood. It is a cautionary tale for young girls. Look what happens when you talk to strangers and stray from the path. Beware wolves who follow you into your own home, particularly those who are hairy on the inside. Red Riding Hood is a tale about rape and violation and violence. And there are literally hundreds of, certainly thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of different versions of Little Red Riding Hood that are circulating as I speak right now uh, that uh, enable people in different communities and societies to talk about and to convey ideas and opinions about this whole notion of rape, violence, and so on. The wolf has stopped devouring Little Red Riding Hood in most cultures because of the fact that it is considered dangerous or offensive or harmful to children that a wolf actually touches either Grandma or Little Red Riding Hood. The most interesting moment in the Red Riding Hood tale is, is I think, when Red Riding Hood's in bed with the wolf and she says, oh my goodness, what big teeth you have. I think it both excites and terrifies. I mean, there is a potential there for a very primal encounter. In this way, Red Riding Hood expresses a girl's curiosity about her awakening sexuality. Red Riding Hood is no longer a victim, but feisty and sexually adventurous. She embraces a new relationship with the wolf. Explore the hidden meanings of fairy tales. Visit abc.net.au slash reenchantment. So Sarah, can I invite you to come up and um, take us... We'll explore um, two spaces today, um, Hansel and Gretel, and uh, just a brief introduction to Snow White. Thanks, and thanks, Nori, for your generosity of comments about the project and us as a team. It's, it's great, so thank you. Um, so entering the reenchantment world, we're really entering through the gates and we're entering a forest. Now, 
I'll try and weave in some of the creative process in as I'm talking, is that one of the very early ideas is that we wanted to be set in a forest and that sort of was the sense as that we're fer- that's where fairy tales are set, that's where we should be. I think I originally thought we'd go 3D, zooming through forests and finding um, places, but I had to learn the lesson about um, what's possible, technically possible, and remember at this stage I hadn't worked in an interactive um, mode at all. So one of the things that uh, was initially choosing the stories, and I talked about that yesterday, about settling on six stories that the site, that was limited by the amount of time we had, money, and um, so I chose the stories that crossed culture, that we were familiar with, and would resonate uh, in popular culture. So um, they were Cinderella, Snow White, Red Riding Hood, Bluebeard, Rapunzel and Hansel and Gretel. Um, so uh, we knew that we wanted to um, try... Well, I knew I wanted to take people into a multi-layered approach to interpretation, that we'd look at ideas from the point of view of social history, from the point of view of culture and the point of view of psychology. And uh, to do that, we would bring in contemporary work from artists and people who had already been in this field thinking about fairy tales. So let's go into Hansel and Gretel. Um, so one of the things that the challenges for me was how much content could you place in a in a project like this and how would you organise it? So I'd do my research into what I wanted to communicate about a particular story like Hansel and Gretel. I'd think about what the central ideas were that I wanted to communicate and how many points of entry there'd need to be and maybe I'd have an idea. Like I always knew that... Uh, we, we were always going to have in each story space a book, a clock, a mirror, uh, even if they weren't literal like that, to try and communicate the stories. And we showed yesterday how you can listen to versions of the story as well. There aren't so many in Hansel and Gretel because it's not, um, it, it hasn't been uh, used in a lot of cultures in the same way as, say, Cinderella or Red Riding Hood. So if we go in more into the forest, you see that there are pebbles. And I thought I was looking for what are the symbols in the stories. And so in the case of Hansel and Gretel, you have the pebbles, the witch's house uh, are the obvious ones. So um, if we um, go into a pebble, you'll see we're dealing with some of the no history. No one knows exactly when the story of Hansel and Gretel took place. Child abandonment and infanticide. Could we have more volume? Common practices at the time of the Grimm brothers. It's been estimated that in pre-modern Europe, abandonment may have been as high as 15 to 20 percent of all births. Okay, so um, so what you'll see is that we're combining uh, video footage uh, where we can have little segments that carry some of the information. So there's three pebbles. And then, or, then the strategy here is as you go further into the forest, it becomes darker, and the ideas that we're dealing with are actually darker. So if we go further in, we uh, come to the uh, night forest. So the first section of the pebbles deals with the ideas of abandonment, uh, actual, psychological, and how lost in the... Uh, lost in the woods can also be translated into Australia as the lost child. 
and all our films and uh, visual culture around the idea of the lost child. So when we go into the night forest, we're really dealing with that idea of lostness, which is part of both the emotional and cultural kind of question of what's it like to be lost. <coughs> Can we have a high volume on the clip? Popular culture has exploited the idea of being lost. Why are we space, not getting volume? Lost on desert islands, lost at sea, and in wilderness. <laughs> okay, so we'll just, um, so this is a section, we'll just plow on. This is a section that's dealing with um, that idea of uh, lostness, which I think is, uh, the culture has taken up. And trying to make the link between cultural ideas and the fairy tales is something that I was particularly interested in. So, uh, so what you're seeing here are really video windows that are built in to a structure of um, a larger landscape that's been animated. So, um, if we there's interactive elements, obviously some of these you're going to discover by just experimentation. Others you can go to via uh, menu system. But here, um, here of course, is the uh, witch's house and we actually physically put the lollies on a physical cake and then filmed it and then it became animated. So some lucky children got to eat that, hopefully um, without it, guilt-free. And here you'd have an example of the clock where we Although would have some of the history. can be made of anything edible, so we commonly associate it with gingerbread. Yeah, can we have it higher? Yeah. Gingerbread has been baked in Europe since about 1100 AD. It was a fairground delicacy and sold in playful, colourfully decorated shapes. It is believed that German houses made from gingerbread were inspired by the story of Hansel and Gretel, not the other way round. Okay, so um, I would research and script and come up with uh, rough sketches, uh, diagrams, um, sort of a, a kind of rough storyboard of where I thought I wanted to go to and say, like, what might be in the forest, etc. And then I would take that and meet with the design team and from that would come some ideas about interaction and a more navigational, detailed navigational diagram. And then Rose will take up talking about how we work that into design. So then I would go back with to my own process of research and scripting with the... Um, with the um, with the navigational map and then I would try and write for the map. So I would then take back visual ideas and try and be working them around the structure of the navigation. A very different process to a normal film one. So, yeah, do you want to go inside the house, the bottom? Oh, yeah, okay. So uh, in the system of the house, we knew, well, you can't do Hansel and Gretel with our house. And we had a system of bites, which you think would be a very simple thing, where it turned out to be a little bit more complicated, but um, where you actually eat the house and each time you take a bite of the house, you get more information, more layers of meaning about the house. Um, so this is an example of one. One view is that when Hansel and Gretel eat the house, 
They are venting their hostility towards the mother who both withholds and provides nourishment. Looked at in this way, the witch's house is the mother's body being attacked by the children. So you've got the psychoanalytic ideas mixed in there with other historical and cultural ideas. And so going into the witch's house was the thing I most wanted to do. And I think Rose and I had a lot of fun with this idea of entering the house of the Dark Mother. And um, I mean, Rose has created this environment to go in. And also I had done some uh, paintings and had some ideas from some animated sequences, which I was interested in exploring the, um, the feeling side of a person's experience of going into the house of the Dark Mother. So... Um, there's a, you'll find a, a animations of paintings of my own in the, in the house. My mother was unpredictable. Any moment I could be her next meal. Um, so they get slightly more complicated. We'll just go in the house a little bit more. So this is a fantastic, playful way to be able to work. So to be able to explore ideas in sequences and be able to experiment, really. And this was the sort of joy of working this way. Um, this would be a lot harder to do in a linear documentary. You will never amount to anything. You're selfish. You're stupid. No one could love you. I believed I was the problem. I knew my mother hated me. My mother's unhappiness became my unhappiness. I took the bad mother, the depressed mother, inside before I could understand. I wanted to show you this sequence because, in a way... What the invitation is, is to encourage people to contribute. And, um, I mean, what we've seen of some of the artwork that's been shown has been a very accomplished artist who have reputation. And I wouldn't want people to think that reenchantment was just uh, an avenue for uh, polished work. I'm interested in the raw work. I'm interested in people using it as a vehicle to, you know, explore ideas and express ideas. And these are very rough, intuitive paintings um, that have been absorbed into the site. So hopefully, it gives you a sort of sense of room to move from uh, of things that you might want to uh, submit to user galleries. And I'd just like to show that to you for those of you who weren't here yesterday. So we have a gallery section. One side has curated exhibitions where you can see um, those artworks of artists who are in the site. Uh, and you can look at these in your own leisure and I will be curating more of those exhibitions and putting them up. But on the other side is what's really exciting and that's the... Uh, user galleries. So here, this is where the invitation is for you to upload your own work. So video clips, sound files, um, artwork, whatever. So it's a simple process um, of uh, using the create button. So it's a very straightforward system of uploading files. So familiar to most of you from other uh, mediums. So um, yeah, 
So I'd like to, rather than do any more, is maybe hand over to Rose. I mean, we could keep showing you re-enchantment, but um, you can go into re-enchantment at your own leisure, as Nori suggested. So over to Rose to really talk more about the design process, and then Sue and I will respond about the challenges for us in working this way. Thank you, Sarah and Sue and Nori. Um, and thanks for having me in Melbourne. Can't hear me? That's better. I've got to yell. Okay. Um, now, I'm sorry, the button here is, I'm convinced it keeps moving, so forgive me if I go the wrong way. Um, but I want to talk about process today. This was a year-long uh, project for me, so 20 minutes is not a long time to talk about everything. Um, so I figure if I go through process, um, it could be quite interesting. And basically, Sue and Sarah and I come from linear backgrounds. I mean, Sue's got some more experience in interactive and, and non-linear than, than we do. But essentially, a linear background is, you know, you experience a story, you get to the end through the beginning and the middle, you can't get there any other way. So the ideas are very sequenced uh, logically and linearly from A to Z. Um, in a non-linear environment, you still have a story, but... <laughs> Sorry, but but you don't have control over how it's accessed and how people will experience that. And from a storytelling perspective, that's actually very difficult, I would imagine, as a director, to have a story in mind and then be confronted with an environment where y your users might actually hit the end straight away. So you can't control that, um, and it has a lot of challenges in terms of um, constructing stories. And also in terms from, from my perspective from design. Um, so in a linear environment where you're talking about long-form narrative stories, design uh, usually is employed as a device to link ideas um, and to illustrate something that doesn't exist. So you bring the tangible, the intangible into the tangible realm. Um, and often in documentary, I mean most of my work is documentary factual based, it is also a device... Um, that is employed when there isn't any footage or, you know, the history just... It's there, but we have nothing to show it. And that's where I would come in. Um, so in Reenchantment, this was pretty much a gift. I loved working with Sarah and Sue um, because it's just the most... Oopsie. Sorry. It's just the most uh, in-depth exploration. And, and I think that's another big difference between linear and non-linear is, like, you would not get this depth of information, these topics, this range of uh, content in a linear um, execution. Except, I mean, you know, maybe you'd get a 10-series crime season that would cover you know, murder, rape, killing your mother, killing your babies, all that stuff. But, but this is one project that has all of that. So I think that this platform allows for that scope, but it means that you have to approach the visual in a very different way. So let's talk about process. I've got a couple of diagrams here. I'm going to try and rush because I've got so much stuff. I hope I don't sound like a fool, but, you know, we've got so much to get through. Um, so technically in a linear, this is kind of a really rough diagram of, of what I would face from a, a design perspective. And I would prefer to come on earlier, obviously, so I'm involved in creating the story as well. Um, but I would work closely with the director, the producer, the editors in the, in the um, early stage and you can see it goes from br brief to design and then you have feedback and it's kind of a cyclical process and you sort of get, you get a lot of um, privilege 
in, in linear to massage it in the edit suite with the editors, with the creative team, sort of probably two-thirds of the process. And then towards the end, you're, you're heading towards lock-off. It's where the investors would come in and have their say. And really, for me as a designer, by then, I would hope that that's finished. If, sometimes you have to go back and revise, but really. Um, so that's the process in linear, and that's what I'm used to. Um, okay, so non-linear, completely different story. We start, as always, working with the director and the producer. We have ideas, we have the script, and we develop the ideas. And then I go into the design mode, and we have I have some case studies to show you just after this of you know the evolution of a design. Um, and then you sort of end up locking the design off quite early. And then it has to go to another team, which is the flash and programmers. So it kind of goes into the back end of the machine. Um, a lot of work. Oh, bugger. Sorry. Oh, sorry about this. this. button keeps moving, I swear. Okay, thank you. Um, so then we go into the back end and uh, it goes to the programmers. But then it comes back and you just look at it and go, hmm, <laughs> that's interesting. And then you sort of have a bit more massaging. And then you go to user testing. And that's where a whole bunch of people go, well, this bit sucks. So then you have to go back and go, okay, uh, we did that wrong, so let's fix that. And it's all this cyclical stuff. Lots of people involved, lots of process. But you would hope from a design perspective that you lock it off fairly early because... What's happened? Where'd I go? It's gone. It's non-linear. <laughs> Here we go. It's non-linear. Thank you. Um, so let's look at the broad picture here. The final design happens pretty early in the stage and that is lock off because once you move past that stage, you start burning money very quickly. Um, and so we try to avoid that. Obviously, not being experienced in this environment, you, you know, there's, there's a few mistakes that you make, you learn along the way. But essentially, yeah, this becomes a really convoluted process. Um, so that's very different to working in linear. Um, all right, so I'll take you through one case study from Cinderella. And and it's the Wheel of Fortune. Um, so Sarah, Sarah would come to me with a script and say, this is my understanding and my idea about Cinderella. And we, we decided, Sarah decided early that she wanted a vaudeville kind of um, light-hearted, playful, graphic approach. So as you've seen, some of the spaces are quite dark. And, you know, I love that. But, but it was also good to do a bit of fun. Um, so the Wheel of Fortune is, as a graphic, when you work in interactive, graphics carry a lot because they actually are the environment. So in linear, in, in linear you've got footage and the narrative that forms the environment. The graphics are kind of in there weaving in the service of that. In interactive, it's reversed. Um, you actually are the environment. And so this is an example of something that has to be interactive. But in the early days, my knowledge of interactivity, you know, was a little bit limited. So you can see here we've got a lever. And that's the interactivity. Okay, and here we have the user instructions. Because you do need to tell people what you want them to do. Because a, a lot of people just will look at that and go, well, what is that? But we decided that it wasn't really clear enough. So this is a series of storyboards of the evolution of the first round of design. And this is how I would communicate with not only Sarah and Sue, but also the programmers and people. So this is my vision. And when, when it needs to move, I'm going to try and indicate that for you. And so in, in a sense, it's animatic. It's like a static animatic. Um, so as you can see, the evolution here, it's moving around. And the idea is that you move through the design so you're not you're not only designing sort of scenes you're designing in as well and each layer has to do something 
So that's a level of interactivity that's kind of very different to linear. Um, so we, we have to resolve on the footage. And so I always have to think through, well, what does that look like? How does it behave? How do I show that? And that's the beginning of the storyboarding process. This is the next version. And we decided that the lever had to go. And let's make it a bit more inviting and a bit more playful. So the lever is now a leg stuck on the side. And what happens is... Oh, <laughs> what happens is you, you tweak the leg and you get different versions in the Wheel of Fortune. And then you have to click on them to get to the content. But even that's not technically really clear. And so you can see over here on the right-hand side the two, the two frames. I've sort of started working with early representations of the navigation bar just to see you know, what it looks like in the frame, how it will operate, what the user will see. Um, okay. And then oh, I think I just missed one. Let me try and go back. <laughs> okay, that's all right. We'll keep going. Oh, there we go. Okay, so then... But you also have to show where you've been. So you have to track the path. Try and You can't actually control it, but you can try and shape it. And then you have to track that you've been there so that the user is aware that, okay, I don't need to go there again. I've seen that bit. And that's where the tags on the left-hand side, the red tags, come in. Um, so this is like a process of sitting in a room with Sarah going... Okay, what do you reckon? Is it going to work? Isn't it going to work? And then Sue would come in also. And, and But at this stage, we have nothing actually programmed, so it's all working in stills, just trying to imagine, is this going to work? Um, then we evolved to the final scene, so I've got a bit more scenery in there. Um, and these, again, these are my storyboards that I pass on to the, the programming team. And it also shows, you know, uh, result, I guess, cause and effect. So we're going right through to the end and we're flipping out to get to the content, where you display the art. I mean, this is a vehicle for art as much as it is for psychological ideas and cultural explorations. So, you know, I'm, I would never um, um, try and get in the way of another artist's work and, and my job is to make it look as good as I can within the environment. So I always try and design with that in mind. And this is just an example of you know, how the artwork would display for the Wheel of Fortune. And so now you've been through the whole Wheel of Fortune, you've got all your tags up and you know that you're finished. Okay. How, how am I going for time? <laughs> I could skip Bluebeard if I'm... You've got another ten minutes. All right, okay, I'm doing all right. Um, let's have a look at Bluebeard. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen Bluebeard yet, I assume you might have. But this is a very early... Bluebeard was the prototype for this. Um, so this was... Uh, before my time, I came on board after the prototype had been developed um, and a designer called Catherine Gleeson, who works in Interactive, had set up the prototype. And this is just um, kind of like a process example of where the idea is great but it doesn't actually fit the platform. So this is the corridor and the, and the idea, Sarah's idea with Bluebeard is that you, in a fairy tale, if you're told you can't go through a door, you absolutely have to. Um, and we're making Bluebeard... You can't. You you want. You're not allowed to go through the blue door, but you actually really want to. But in order to do that, you have to go through all the other doors. So this design here is really beautiful, but from a user perspective, it's not. It's not effective. So we we have no control over the pathway here. Okay, and and this is an example of you know we had design meetings where we'd sit in a room and sort of toss around the problems and say this is going to work because this isn't going to work. Um, so this is just a, a series actually of Catherine's notes that she took from one of our meetings, and it's just sort of you know to fix up 
and do stuff. And I thought I had, I, I think I must have them a bit out of order, but I, I'll show you what the eventual corridor end up looking like. Um, but this is also to communicate how, you know, how we tossed around our ideas and communicated our vision. I've actually got a camera plan in here, which should come up. I don't know what's happening. I've lost my camera plan. There's nothing happening. Uh, oh, bugger. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, here we go. Thank you very much. Yes, this, these are the uh, final doors. Okay, so we ended up with um, a camera plan. I think I'm going to try and go back. It's too risky. <gasps> okay, that's the corridor. We ended up designing a scene that goes in rather than left to right. So interactivity is about going in, literally, and also metaphorically. Um, but this corridor, you, you, you want to get to the blue door because it's so inviting, but you, you've actually got a series of choices um, before you get to the blue door. So you can go straight there, but you can't get in. But you have to if, go back then and view the content in the other doors. Okay, so this is a camera plan, and this is how I would communicate with uh, other designers and um, just the sense of motion and, and if it's possible, can we do this, can we not do that? That's a top-down view of all the layers, so it's all orthographic. Um, okay, corridor, doorways, fabulous stuff. I don't know if you've seen this, but it's great. The ideas are great. Um, and each door, you know, you go into and you experience something that's to do with thematically, you know, murder and death and stuff. It's great. Um, so how do we communicate cross-platform and cross-country? Because Sue was based in Melbourne and Sarah and I were in Sydney. Um, our programmers were in Sydney. But there was a lot of communication that had to happen. Um, so we did that by a number of ways. And this is a huge beast of a project. There are six story spaces plus a gallery and probably bits that I'm now forgetting, but there's lots of different layers. And that actually results in a lot of assets, things that we called assets. And because it's cross-platform, there's video, there's uh, photographs, there's animations, you know, it just, it's massive. Um, and so I, I do this with any, any project, whether it's linear or non-linear, it's like you need to track the assets. Um, so this was a, a, a map a site map that Catherine did very early on for the space of Red Riding Hood. And for every box and every even every text box, there's scenes that need to be designed. So in terms of design, that's a huge workload and that's just one space. But each of these spaces is allocated a number that indicates um, placement within the overall site plus depth within each specific site. And that became an experience <laughs> um, given that we're also visual yes the numbers were great um, so again um, we communicate just by you know scribbles and camera plans and and this is for, for any designer this I think this is an invaluable tool because you could both be talking about red but seeing a completely different color of red so it's really good to just you know nail it before you start okay and storyboards this is a sequence of you know an example of how I would indicate motion and we get through to a gallery space here and this is what it looks like. Um, so you can see there's a lot of work that goes into the front end before we get to programming and then we kind of try and lock it off and move it into the programming stage. But, but in all of those sort of discussions we are involving the programmers obviously because you want to know that what you're going to do is going to work and that you're not throwing your money away. Um, so again, more, more um, storyboards. That's uh, Hansel and Gretel on the left and Bluebeard on the right. Oh, fuck me. 
Okay. Um, and so um, we also had a tool called the Virtual Studio, which um, I'm not sure when, when it was made. It was already in existence when I came on board, but it's, it's wonderful. It's online. It's like an online viewing room, and that enabled any of us at any time to post stuff for feedback and also get online and check you know, who's doing what. And it was sort of like a really great way, visual, great way to work uh, when you're working cross-country. So you can see here that um, Karen, who's, who's one of our interactive designers, posted a design at the bottom here. And so you know, we would all get on and say, yes, yeah, great, or you know, that's crap, do it again. Uh, and there's another version here, which is you know, Red Riding Hood. But that was, that was a very useful tool. We hammered that. Um, and also, you know, a big part of reenchantment is the artist's work, which is, you know, magnificent. It's just I'm really proud to be involved in such uh, an extensive project. Um, and we're also sensitive to how we display people's material. So, you know, part of the process is approval processes um, where I would mock up frames and say this is what it's going to look like and then I'd pass it to our researcher, Penny, who's brilliant and then she would take care of all the copyright and you know checking that everybody's happy just to make sure that everyone's well represented and just more examples of you know uh, this is an early obviously the design has changed slightly but you get the idea okay well um i am actually finished <laughs> but i can take you through a few more slides i've got plenty of slides um just looking at some of the artwork that is on the site which is beautiful this is gorgeous Snow White, Cindy Sherman. It was just such a, a pleasure to work on this project. I'm very proud of it. And I'm glad it's out there. It's taken a long time. It's a labour of love. So you can see like lots of different styles from you know, sculpture through to photography, painting, drawing, just beautiful interpretations of these really well-known fairy tales. And these are just um, scenery... Um, from some of the sites, the forests that we're in, the top one is Snow White. And, you know, as Sarah mentioned, in, in every scene there are triggers and clues and we try to make what they are consistent um, conceptually but, it, but within each scene they obviously look different. So there's the book, um, the clock, so there's history and there's uh, cultural. And so we have Cinderella and Hansel and Gretel, which actually has a lot of Sarah's artwork in it. So when I design, I try to think about the content, what, it, what I'm actually designing around, uh, and how I can make it look really good. So I would incorporate that blue bead. Snow White. Snow White was the last space I did. I was very tired. I was going very slowly at that point, but I love Snow White. And this is actually um, our sound designer's music student. She was gorgeous. Sound designer did an amazing job. She's just fabulous which you know any animator will tell you animation is 50 percent of the story sound is the rest so you know it just brings it to life and just some scene oops all right i'm finished <laughs> thank you very much i mean from the point of view of a director it's fantastic to work with somebody who engages with the stories and does her own creative reinterpretation because that's what Rose did. She would take the ideas and then uh, filter them, let them resonate in herself and bring her own creative vision to interpret those. And that's a, that's a gift to work with somebody like that where it's not a job. 
a task. It's actually a sort of an, a creative engagement. Just a couple of things I wanted to add about um, Rose has shown you those diagrams of process. Now, one of the things for me is that once I've said okay to a visual design, apart from the user testing about whether the interactivity works, that's it. So working in a uh, a linear way, you have an edit period. You're always there adjusting the image and working on the final look of a piece at the till the very end. In this instance, I'm locking off on a storyboard or a visual idea, and then it's two. Ex once it's all programmed, sometimes I didn't see things for uh, six months. Then by the time it comes back, it's too late to change the. Um, the whole concept or the visualisation. So those decisions made early was painful because you didn't know whether they were going to work and you didn't have any recourse. So that for me was a major disadvantage of working this way. And there was the issue that Rose uh, talked about, about when you're making a documentary, you've got an argument and you can put the argument. I had to let go of the fact that anyone would ever get the full sense of my interpretations or sense of a story space. I mean, once people... I mean, people might come in for five minutes or they might come in for an hour. And um, so I just had to let go of it and just hope that something um, would come of what people encountered. But what the meaning of that is that the visualisation of the story, as Rose, I think, was explaining, then becomes powerfully important, that every sequence, every image, has to carry the meaning and the feeling of the space. And we've gone for mystery and, um, and a sense of discovery. But to me, that's always the challenge of somebody working visually, but I think working in this mode, it is absolutely important that the meaning is there in every frame. Um, I think there are poetic possibilities of working this way, as you've seen in Rose's images, that you couldn't get in working just in... Uh, unless you had an awful lot of money, which most documentary makers don't have. Um, it, so there's a layering and a potential to work poetically that I really appreciate working in this way. And there's also a layering that happens about layers of um, resources and meanings, like there's ways in which um, you can find the research that, that these interpretations are based on and so that becomes accessible to everyone. Now with a documentary you could have additional extras on your DVD but really you're limited to that kind of providing of a resource. Um, and then most of all I'd say the benefit to me in working in this way is the interactivity and that's what we've shown about the gallery but it's also there in terms of forums to be able to have, uh, to have it grow. And, I mean, that was the other thing about the motif of the forest, is always a sense that this is a project that grows with the community around it. it we start it, we've done this much, but then it's over to other people. So just there, um, just very quick reflections on uh, key differences for me about working this way. Sometimes an enormous frustration. I hated things disappearing into the bowels of computer programming. I hated the fact that every image had a number and if you referred to the wrong number you got something quite different and so that is like breaking down what is a flowing and creative process into bite-sized pieces of information and that to me uh, creates a completely different environment for creative work and I mean that's a kind of interesting discussion to have but I'll hand over to Sue who's got a couple more things to say about 
this end of the uh, process. Uh, yeah, no, it does have to be said that um, producing, writing, directing, designing, this kind of non-linear work is profoundly different on every possible level that you could imagine to producing film or television or working in a linear environment. So everything from the creative you know, collaboration uh, practices that we've um, sort of touched on today through to the type of engagement with um, audiences or users or as participants, as we like to, to call them, or you know, people who are engaging with us, through to the development and the production methodologies, um, the finance and revenue models, the business models of how linear film and television works as opposed to the digital media sector, um, through to even the very motivations of why you're working um, in these areas. So es essentially, um, I often liken it to, you know, at the moment there appears to be sort of two parallel cultures um, at work. You know, a culture that revolves around what is largely a fashion industry, around um, IT, which is about really cool stuff that... Um, can be designed and developed and and largely it's driven by um, functionality that is you know just really cool things that um, that you can uh, play with and access and throw through various um, you know digital interfaces um, and it, everything changes very very rapidly in in this um, world of uh, of IT so when some a project like reenchantment that comes along that is actually not so much about, hey, really cool functionality. In fact, it's, you know, on one level, it's a very simple functionality, but is about content and how you really use the platform to de deliver something of depth um, in relation to content, in this case about fairy tales, is, um, you know, can actually be a challenge. Like, for instance, we, when we started four years ago, Flash was kind of all the rage. Well, you know, Flash is now, you know, been superseded, you know, HTML5 and so on. The platforms have um, shifted. However, it still is a very, very powerful, important platform for delivering the, the, the content and the experience that we wanted to um, with re-enchantment. But that's how quickly the, um, you know, the technology in the back end can change. The other thing is, and Sarah just touched on this, is the ideas um, and the content and the material uh, that we're developing in a linear fashion, we might start with outlines, treatments, scripts. I'm sure many of you are familiar with, um, with working with those kind of foundation documents. Once you move into the IT area, I mean, we were working with um, developers who don't read scripts. That, that's not actually the relevant mode of communication. What is the relevant mode of communication is the navigation architecture and how that is translated from the scoping document, which is locked off very, very early in the process. So I'm um, we're going back three years ago now. Sarah and I were needing to make decisions about the project um, that go into, which effectively is designing a brief. And we're not talking about the script here, we're talking about a brief that then goes to developers um, we jointly sign off on what is known as a scoping document, which effectively becomes the contract of how we're going to make this work. 
And then anything that's outside of scope obviously has massive consequences in terms of cost and time and so on. So the idea of how we work in linear uh, film and television where you can keep asking that question, what if, what if, all the way through, right up until you lock off, what if you change the cut in this way or the sound design or you added in something, or that, that's actually not possible um, beyond a very prescribed you know, set of circumstances in this world because of the, in part, the massive amount of um, information that you're working with that has to be locked into these navigational structures and every single, every single piece of dialogue, text, image, sound is assigned a number and we need to manage that through a content management system where every task is assigned a ticket. So it's effectively turning really a, an intuitive um, process into a very deeply logical uh, process through these management systems. And the challenge for us as a, as a team, as a producing and creating team, is to keep the artist in the room, to keep the creator in the room and not to um, be overtaken by the methodology so that you lose sight, really, of you know, the heart and the guts of the work. Because ultimately, that's why we're in this business. This is why we do it. We've got something that we want to say and that we want to communicate and a vision for the work. And um, that, you know, that's, I think, one of the biggest jobs, really, of, um, you know, for Sarah and I as, um, um, as a team to, you know, to keep, keep that vision intact. So um, just very briefly, the, um, Rose alluded very well to the timeline, uh, the creative process, and Rose probably came on about sort of six months um, or so into it, but it literally starts uh, with an electronic proof of concept, which is like a digital walkthrough of the kind of ideas that um, we had for the site. And then from that, that also becomes the basis to go out and raise the finance for the work. And even though we blithely talk about working transmedia and it's such a buzzword and you know, cross-platform and so on, I can tell you right now there's a lot of very heritage media thinking that still exists out there um, whereby people still predominantly work in television or they work you know, in radio or they work online and they actually are not particularly working uh, across all of those formats and that is something that revisited us all the way through the proposal, so through the project. What's exciting though about it is if you can get people, you know, on board about this, it actually, working cross-platform gives you many, many more doors to knock on in terms of raising finance. So it meant in this work we could raise money from, you know, the television sector for the 30-minute animation series we could raise money from um, Screen Australia for the, um, you know, the website um, component because websites actually don't qualify for licence fees from, from the networks. They don't qualify for the producer offset, which is the main film uh, form of um, financing these days through tax rebate. However, if you put them together, then they do qualify. So we were able to get the producer offset for the whole project precisely because of the cross-platform nature of the work. The other thing that um, I want to say is that if you're trying to do something different and innovate, then 
one of the ways that you might go about this is not going to the so-called heritage or you know traditional areas, but you might go find those uh, places or those sites that are interested in R&D. And, of course, that's where universities come in. So on two projects now uh, and in this on reenchantment, we could not have done this without UTS, University of Technology in Sydney. Um, by bringing in a, a university that has you know, a, um, a department that is interested in the idea of innovation to the extent that UTS was able to give us a whole lot of in-kind support so access to studio, to server, to a couple of office spaces, editing facilities, sound facilities, um, you know, a whole range of modes of support um, actually was a very, very important part of um, how we, we got this project happening. And I would really encourage any of you who are thinking about going down this path to talk to universities um, because, you know, you can often find really fantastic opportunities for joint ventures and that's exactly what we're doing now on the next project as well. So, look, I might um, wind up here because we can move into um, discussion, but, you know, we're happy to um, answer any questions that you might have that tease out some of the themes we've been talking about today. Um, so thank you. Are, are our mics on? Yeah, we've got ten minutes. Yep. Um, so we've got, what, ten minutes or so for discussion. So I'd like to um, thank the speakers and also open it to you for questions or comments or whatever. Yes. Okay. Hi, I was actually wondering if there was anything else around at the same time that reenchantment is so innovative, but whether there were any other projects happening around the world that you drew inspiration from or could learn a little from their processes and share knowledge with. I was incredibly. Uh sick of asking the question really well could you show me another example of what an interactive documentary was can you show me one that I could work on and I couldn't nobody could show me one so it took me about six months to accept that and say okay we're going just intuitively creatively here until someone tells us we can't and it won't work and um, building that way I, I was amazed really that there weren't other examples to model ourselves on. I think it would have been great if there were. We did rather love um, Pan's Labyrinth uh, website, though. That, that was a very beautiful website in terms of the experience of creating a world and taking um, people into a world. It was great. Hi. Hi. Um, just speaking of what's out there on the web, what's um, the level of complexity of translating something like this, language-wise? Well, all the, um, the text, um, you know, is HTML and sits... Uh, all the commentary that you hear, voiceover and so on, is um, on the side you would have seen little menu boxes uh, that you can um, access the text version of everything you hear. And it would be like you, you know, would need to... Um, entertain with any traditional you know, film or television through the post-production script um, arranged for translation um, or you know, sell to a, um, uh, another language so that they would normally um, arrange translation into their, their foreign language or their you know, other language. Um, how we've structured this one is that the site um, is actually geo-blocked for all English-speaking languages and so we now have the opportunity to go to um, to other countries, non-English speaking, 
and um, sell them the 10 by 3 minute interstitials and the license to host the website on their uh, server with you know, their URL. And in fact, I pitched this project in South Korea and there's a huge amount of interest over there through the Educational Broadcasting Service um, as uh, an English-speaking uh, language tool because it, um, everybody knows about fairy tales. They're universal. Um, but to, yeah, that we've had that discussion about translating it um, into Korean, the, the text boxes and so on. So that complexity of layering all along the design path, mm. that's the sort of sideways entry into all those text-based boxes that are given their number mm. is, is open there for the translation. Yeah, no, it would literally would require a um, the HTML text all sits you know within the back end in one area. So you would you know there would be a um, a global which read everything that's English text changed to Korean or to Chinese or to French. Uh, so you so you you brought up a archival design question. I think is this uh, do you see it as an ephemeral work is there some post uh, flash period in um, it uh, where it will not really function and are you somewhere wishing that maybe you, you make a series of films or a book about it too something that's archivally more durable yeah well look we are actually in discussion uh, right now with um, you know two publishers about the book so uh, because of course you know a coffee table book uh, of these beautiful, Im- you know, images and design uh, targeted to adults and so on is, uh, you know, given the current obsession around the whole idea of fairy tales reimagined, it's very good timing for something like this at the moment. Um, and the, yeah, you know, it, the, the work itself being on the um, the Flash platform, well, I can guarantee you right now what is currently available will be out of date in four years as well. So, you know, this is a perennial issue around migration of um, platforms. However, uh, for the moment, uh, the ABC, you know, certainly see this as a, um, you know, a platform that will be around for some time. Um, The last project I did was actually on an interactive graphic novel and we completed that in 2005. That's still alive and active. That's all Flash. Um, And... We, um, we would hope anyway, certainly for the next five to ten years, that people will still be able to access uh, th- this platform, even though the technology will have moved on to other modes of delivery for new works. So in terms of budget, um, can you talk us through the stages of development and the associated funding that you came, came on at each point? Yeah. The um, very first stage of um, development really is raising some seeding money uh, in order to make an electronic proof of concept. So that is to give a little bit of money for um, Sarah to, to develop uh, that the, the concept and to bring in a digital media director at that time, Catherine Gleeson, and the three of us workshop. Um, I think, you know, we, we did this over a period of about, I don't know, three or four months and uh, put together the um, electronic proof of concept, which then, you know, becomes the, the basis then to go out and raise the larger budget. The larger budget was 740000 and of that, 250000 was in-kind. So really, it was you know, about half a million um, in cash that we needed to raise, and we did that um, from ABC, Screen Australia, uh, Film Victoria, and um, UTS was yeah, the significant component of in-kind along with the ABC. 
Another question? I think that might be time. Oh, no, we, we've still... No, it's not quite quarter two, is it? <laughs> not quite. Anyone One else? One more question. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you could shine some more insight on the um, creative process you use to uh, select and refine the iconic um, navigation and the elements relating to the story. And um, it's probably for Rose and Sarah, I suppose, how you two kind of work together. To I think I would, from my own uh, research and scripting, I would come up with what I thought the main symbols were that were arising out of the story. And so I'd go to those um, brainstorming meetings with, say, knowing that uh, the shoe and the foot, clearly for Cinderella, the, um, the snow and the ice for Snow White, the, you know, like there'd be sort of concepts that would have arisen quite naturally out of um, the story. And then taking those into a brainstorming meeting to then see where, the, where they went, like how we might work with that. Like, that decision to make Cinderella a vaudeville show shocked me in a way. It came out of a brainstorming meeting where I just said, look, I'm really worried that Cinderella, you know, we're all, it's all too familiar, we need something different. And, and these ideas came up and let's do it all with feet and shoes. And, and so that sort of idea was generated from the brainstorming, um, as was the... Uh, in Rapunzel, I always knew that I wanted a tower set in a tree... And obviously, you know, it was going to be about hair. And then that idea of um, using a lift with layers of hair, um, hair salon um, ideas, that came from a brainstorming meeting with Rose and with Catherine. So there's something about being able to throw the ideas around, obviously, that, that worked for me. And then I'd take that idea off and then say, OK, it's going to be a tower with levels. What am I going to put in each level? and how are those levels going to be different to each other visually, conceptually. But then somebody else would come up with the idea of, well, in hair extensions, why don't we just use the whole idea of the plait? And, you know, visually the, the ideas would be elaborated. Do you want to say anything? Yeah, um, I guess everybody works differently. And uh, I, mm, I was very lucky with Sarah because the way that I work is very intuitive, but I need time to absorb and to think about things and then I'll come back with ideas so I'm not rapid fire <laughs> I mean I'm not a slow coach but I'm you know I, it's like I, you put me on the spot I need to think about things and Sarah was very gracious with that and I think the three of us actually have this amazing uh, creative chemistry which is quite rare um, so that was that was really harmonious and even though there were times in the process some of this content is very dark we did Cinderella straight after Hansel and Gretel Hansel and Gretel is probably incredibly dark <laughs> and you know at that time I was just dying for some brevity and so you know that was part of it as well and it was like what a relief to do something with colours and light and you know oh silliness and you know it, and I don't mind a bit of silliness but I can't go you know bimbo level um, so so you know it was a real pleasure to work on in many like textures and levels uh, mentally as well as creatively. I think that's time. Um, I'd like you to thank the panel again for their generous sharing of their process. Thank you.